If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Hello, everyone. Before I begin today's episode, I have three quick announcements. First, I was a guest on the French Embassy to the United States official podcast, Francophiles, where I discussed the history behind Juillet 14, known as Bastille Day in the Anglophone world. It's coming up this Tuesday, so there's no better time to learn about this great holiday. I posted the episode across my social media, so if you missed it, please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Reddit, or just check into the French History Podcast website and follow the links under the About page. So far, I've been a guest on five different podcasts, Francophiles, Radio France Internationale, Industrial Revolutions, History's Most, and History's What If?, So, if you've finished all the episodes on my podcast and need more content, be sure to check out my guest appearances. My second announcement is that I have another book out. Sort of. Brainlag, the publishing house that published my book, The Maiden Voyage of New York City, asked their authors to each write a short story for an anthology called The Light Between the Stars. My short story... The Thief and the Coward in Paradise is their number two, and having gotten an early copy, I can tell you that these are incredible stories. As an author who has been publishing short stories for 12 years now, I am convinced that short stories are where real literature is. Novels can become formulaic, and you can be sure the main character will probably make it until the last 20 pages, but with short stories, you have no idea what will happen from sentence to sentence. Please check out the anthology and be sure to tell me if you like it. My third announcement is I have a birthday coming up. This July 13th, I turn 30, and boy, things really didn't turn out like I thought they would. I was supposed to be in New Zealand for a month touring the Lord of the Rings sites, and then a global pandemic occurred, and now I'm stuck at home. But I am not ungrateful, especially because I know so many people who have it worse than me. In fact, I am incredibly thankful that this podcast has done so well and reached so many people. If you had told me that I would be featured on Radio France Internationale and the French Embassy's official website within two years of its launch, I would not have believed you. If you want to make my birthday the best ever, please consider becoming a patron or making a one-time donation as your money keeps the show and my daily historical posts on Facebook and Twitter going. Or if you want to support me and get some awesome swag, go to our website and check out our merchandise where we have four awesome French history designs that you can get on t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, phone covers, face masks, stickers, and pretty much anything. Or you can buy my book, The Maiden Voyage of New York City, and maybe even give it a positive review. If you don't have money to spare, you can still support me and the show by telling your friends and family about us and sharing our posts on social media so that we can grow the French history family. If you like what we've been doing, feel free to give us a positive review on iTunes or whatever source you use. 
and you can always leave me a comment with well wishes, as I appreciate them all. As I mentioned before, this year I am not going to return to teaching, and my day job will be this podcast, so any support you can give is appreciated. Thank you all very much. It's been an amazing ride so far. Now, on to the show. Episode 38, The Long-Haired Kings. Today we return to the political narrative and follow the early Merovingians, otherwise known as the Long-Haired Kings, since their long hair was a symbol of royalty. For those of you who like the medieval setting and aristocratic intrigue, the Merovingians will provide all that and more, as affairs and debauchery determine the course of entire countries. There's lots of names and relations to remember. I'll make a family tree of all the major players and their relations with each other and post it on my website alongside a map. For now, though, I'll try to make things easy by frequently mentioning each person's title and their relation with the other major leaders. While there are many important figures in this episode, our focus is on Clovis' youngest son and most ruthless, Clothar. The Merovingians have a pretty bad reputation, and are often depicted as cruel, violent, sadistic, and sometimes even insane. Part of this isn't their fault, but the world they lived in. The Merovingians divided their kingdoms amongst their sons, at a time when economic necessity naturally led to conflict. The economy of pre-industrial countries was tied to, if not dependent on, conquest. In our modern era, the most advanced economies grow at around 1-2% annually as more machines are built and technology progresses to increase production. Additionally, fossil fuels and advanced energies allow machines to accomplish what hundreds of individuals couldn't. In pre-industrial societies, machines were primitive and labor was based almost entirely on human and animal labor. Nearly all labor went into agriculture and herding for subsistence with very little left over. Thus, pre-industrial economies usually grew at 0.1% during a good year. Medieval kings didn't gain much by investing in building projects or patronizing science since the rate of growth was so slow. But if a king conquered another realm, their wealth and power would increase remarkably. Another thing to consider is the recurrence of death in medieval society. Remember, before modern medicine, half of all people died before the age of 10. Historians still debate what impact this had on the psyche of medieval peoples and how they emotionally and psychologically coped with frequent mortality. Some historians argue that child mortality, starvation, disease, and constant war meant that medieval peoples accepted death as a regular fixture of life. This, in turn, made them less emotionally attached to individuals, even their own children, and they were more violent. This is all an interesting debate, as historians since Lawrence Stone have tried to reconstruct the emotions and psychology of medieval peoples, though there is no consensus. What we do know is that medieval peoples were far more violent than today, 
with murder rates being roughly 20 times higher in medieval France than in modern France. Add to this a masculine warrior culture that glorified conquerors, a semi-professional military that demanded regular booty, and divided realms all next to each other, and you have the perfect recipe for constant war. This was Merovingian Francia. Even if the early Merovingians had been the wisest of all kings, war probably would have engulfed their realms anyway because this was how medieval society operated. But as we shall see, the Merovingians were not the wisest of all kings, and this made things even worse. On the 26th of November, 511, King Clovis passed away. The body of the king of all the Franks was interned at the Abbey of St. Genevieve in Paris. Clovis left behind the greatest kingdom solely in Europe, whose only true rival was Byzantium, far to the east. He united his people and many others under one rule, one faith, and bound them with a common cultural, linguistic, and economic heritage. Greater than his conquests, Clovis created a united people who saw themselves as Franks. This legacy managed to outlive the disastrous rule of his descendants, as over the next 200 years, Francia fell into regular political chaos. After burying Clovis, his four sons each took a quarter of the kingdom. I'm going to put a map on the podcast page so you can follow along, as it may be a bit complicated. For now, I'll do my best to explain. The second oldest son of Clovis, Clodomer, became king of Orléans, a realm straddled between Armorica in the north and Aquitania in the south. It stretched from the Atlantic coast and followed the Loire River all the way to Burgundy, which was an independent kingdom, yet a vassal to Francia. The third son, Childebert, was the king of Paris. His realm was essentially modern-day Brittany and Normandy, with some territory more southward, including Paris, which was the very edge of his kingdom. I highly recommend looking at the map I'm going to post, because the next two brothers received divided realms. The youngest, Clothar, inherited the North Center, and styled himself the King of Soissons for its most important city. He also inherited what would become Aquitania in the southwest. Finally, the eldest brother Theuderic inherited the far northeast and a large chunk of land between Aquitania in the west, the kingdom of Orléans in the north, Burgundy in the east, and the small Visigothic rum state of Septimania to the south. The Franks usually didn't have set capitals as kings and their courts traveled from city to city in order to maintain order. However, the most important city in Theuderic's realm was Reims. This division of Francia sounds confusing, arbitrary, and unmanageable because it was. We really don't know much about why the brothers divided the land the way that they did, other than that it was the Frankish custom to divide lands based on wealth rather than area. Childebert and Clodomer's kingdoms were roughly half the size of Clothar and Theuderic's, but Childebert controlled Paris and most of the trade with the British Isles, while Clodomer's realm included Orléans, and since it was between most of the others, much trade had to pass through it. Meanwhile, Clothar and Theuderic's realms were sparsely populated with fewer large cities. 
I know keeping track of all these brothers might be hard, but don't worry, they're going to start dying off pretty quick. There's one other element that really gave the Merovingian rule an extra helping of madness. Family drama. The inner dynamics of the Merovingians and their relatives often led to conflict, as in the Burgundian War of 523-524. to A little background is needed. In the late 5th century, Gundabad became king of the Burgundians, a title which his three brothers each contested at some point. Gundabad killed each of his brothers, among them Chilperic II and his wife, who he drowned. Gundabad then ordered Chilperic's two daughters, Chroma and Clotilde, into exile. As you'll recall, Clovis married Clotilde so he and his descendants could have a claim to the Burgundian throne. I swear I am trying to tell this in the least complicated way possible. Clotilde never forgave Gundabad for killing her mother and father, but before she could have her revenge, Gundabad died in 516, and his son Sigismund became king of Burgundy. The sons of Clovis could have declared war against Sigismund for the crimes of his father, as this sort of justice was accepted at the time, but it was a weak reason to declare war at best. Thankfully for Clotilde and the sons of Clovis, Sigismund sealed his own doom when he murdered his son in 522. As king of the Burgundians, Sigismund naturally feared the powerful Franks, and allied with the Ostrogoths in Italy, sealing this alliance by marrying the daughter of King Theodoric I. Just a reminder, Theodoric was the Ostrogothic king of Italy, Theuderic was the oldest son of Clovis. Again, I'm trying to make this as simple as possible, but the Franks weren't the most creative people when it came to naming their kids. Sigismund married the Ostrogothic princess, and the two had a son named Sigaric, because the Burgundians weren't that good at naming kids either, though she passed away and Sigismund remarried. His new wife despised Sigaric, who she viewed as a threat to her own children, and the two quarreled viciously. Sigismund's wife convinced him that Sigaric was planning to murder him and take the throne, at which point he ordered his son drowned. This foul murder led to cataclysmic war. First, Sigismund was a kinslayer who had murdered his son and Clotilde's nephew just as his father had murdered her mother and father. This angered the Franks and justified their invasion. Second, and perhaps more importantly, Sigaric was Ostrogothic royalty and Theodoric's grandson. Sigismund had effectively murdered a family member of the two most powerful nations on his borders. Not a great idea, especially at a time when personal relationships were what tied society together. Theodoric and Clotilde's hearts yearned for revenge, and they gave the sons of Clovis justification for invasion. In 523, Sigismund was busy performing penance with a group of monks when the four brothers united and invaded Burgundy from the west, while Theodoric invaded from the south. A quick note on the Frankish military, since it's going to be an important part of this episode. During the early medieval period, the Franks were almost entirely mounted warriors. In fact, the entire invading force in the upcoming Thuringian War was Frankish cavalry. We don't know if this was their indigenous tradition or if they adopted it in emulation of the Huns. 
Whatever the origins, their horses allowed the Franks to invade their neighbors quickly and put down any rebellions before they could spread. Meanwhile, minority groups within Francia made up the other segments of the army. Their Saxon subjects formed the Frankish navy, while the Gallo-Romans operated complex siege equipment. Meanwhile, poor Frankish militias made up the infantry. The swift invasion caught the Burgundians off guard. Sigismund and his brother Godemar rallied their troops but were quickly defeated. Godemar escaped while Sigismund hid in the monastery of St. Maurice disguised as one of the monks, but he was found and the sons of Clovis beheaded him and threw his body down a well before killing his wife and children as they extinguished the rightful heirs to the Burgundian throne. Sigismund was far more loved in death than in life, as his body was removed to the abbey and the Catholic Church canonized him as a saint because of his support of Catholicism against Arianism, which they held outweighed his earthly sins. The four brothers left behind a small force to occupy the territory and returned to their kingdoms for the winter. After they left, Godemar, now the rightful king of the Burgundians, rallied his people killed the occupiers, and prepared for a second invasion. This time, the Burgundians could concentrate all their forces against the Franks, since the Ostrogoths were once again their allies. See, Theodoric was content now that Sigismund had died horribly, and he had no personal enmity against Godemar. Moreover, the Ostrogoths feared and hated the Franks, who were the great power in the region. Even worse, the Franks were close allies of the Byzantines, who under Emperor Justin and his son Justinian wanted to reconquer Italy. Godemar fought with the brothers and on the 25th of June 524 met them at the Battle of Vézérance, today known as Isère in southeastern France. Godemar won a surprising victory and even killed Clodomer. The Franks retreated and Godemar ruled an independent Burgundy. After burying their fallen brother, the remaining three sons of Clovis vied for Clodomer's kingdom, though there was a problem. The rightful heirs to the kingdom of Orléans were the three young sons of Clodomer, Theodobald, Clodoald, and Gunther. However, they were far too young to rule, and so they moved to Paris and were raised by their grandmother Clotilde, while Clothar and Childebert divided their lands and ruled as regents. Clothar married Clodomer's widow Gunthiuk and took the western share of the kingdom of Orléans, while Childebert took the east, including the capital. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code 
French History 50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash frenchhistory50 and use the code frenchhistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. Now jealousy overtook the Uteric. He was the elder brother, but he controlled the smallest portion of Francia. In 531, Theuderic claimed that Hermanfried, the king of Thuringia, a country in south-central Germany, asked him for help in defeating his brother and co-ruler. In exchange for his support, Hermanfried promised to give Theuderic half his kingdom. Theuderic was clearly lying, as no ruler of a minor kingdom would give up half their land to a powerful rival. Moreover, the Thuringians were intermarrying with the Ostrogoths as they developed an alliance against the Franks. Thus, the Uteric invaded Thuringia to preempt an anti-Frank coalition and to expand his dominion so he could rival his younger brothers. Hermanfried held off the Uteric's initial invasion, and the eldest son of Clovis grudgingly called upon Clothar for aid. The two rode out to Thuringia and won a major battle, which forced Hermanfried to flee, leaving behind his 11-year-old niece, Radigund, who Clothar took as a royal hostage. Theuderic then offered Hermanfried clemency and invited him to come to the city of Zulpik to discuss his future. Hermanfried believed Theuderic would let him remain a king, albeit a vassal of the Franks, and he rode west to meet with him. Hermanfried arrived in Zulpik and deliberated with the Franks when he mysteriously fell from the city walls, dying instantly. Theuderic and Clothar then split Thuringia between themselves. In 531, Childebert received a distressed message from his sister Clotilde, not to be confused with his mother, also named Clotilde. In 526, Clotilde the Younger married Amalaric, the Visigothic king of Hispania, as part of their anti-Ostrogothic alliance. But Clotilde was a Catholic, and the Visigoths were Arians, and she complained that she was persecuted for her faith. Tensions rose, and Childebert seized Narbonne. Childebert then marched southward on Barcelona, where King Amalaric was assembling his forces. But suddenly, he was betrayed by the governor of Barcelona, Theudas, who assassinated his lord and declared himself king. Theudas made peace with Childebert, recognized his claim to territories north of the Pyrenees, and released Clotilde. Childebert was content. He expanded his territory, he defeated the Visigoths, which forced them to focus on conquering within Hispania and northern Africa while abandoning Francia, and his beloved sister Clotilde was marching with him back to Paris. All was well until the Frankish princess fell ill and died on the way back. In 532, the three sons of Colodomer were growing long hair, figuratively and literally. Theodobald and Clodowald were ten, while Gunthar was seven. They were still too young to inherit the kingdom of Orléans, but their childhood was ending, and at least the older two were moving into adolescence. At this point, Clothar decided that he would never let Clodomer's children inherit their father's holdings, and he convinced Childebert to join him. Clothar sent an emissary to his mother Clotilde with a pair of scissors and a sword. The message couldn't have been clearer. The children must either cut their hair, give up all claim to the throne, and join a monastery, or die. 
But the old queen Clotilde rebuked her sons and reasserted her grandson's right to rule. In response, Clothar and Childebert rode out to Paris and entered the royal chambers, where Clotilde and the three sons of Clodomer waited. Clothar again demanded that they cut their hair, but they refused. He then drew his sword and stabbed his ten-year-old nephew Theodobald to death. The seven-year-old Gunthar threw himself at Childebert's feet, crying for his uncle to save him. But Childebert simply stood as Clothar drove his sword through the child's chest. The last surviving son, Clodoald, fled, and sympathetic Frankish nobles hid him from his murderous uncle. Clodoald cut his hair and became a monk in a small commune to the west of Paris. He eventually became Saint-Cloud, and today that commune bears his name. In one year, Queen Clotilde had lost her beloved daughter and watched her sons murder two of her grandchildren in front of her. Ironically, Clotilde provided her sons an excuse to war against the Burgundians by naming their king a kinslayer. After this event, Clotilde largely retired from politics and spent her life founding churches and monasteries as she abandoned any hope of reforming her warmongering sons and died in 548. Around the same time that Clothar murdered his nephews in 532, the Munderic affair nearly toppled Theuderic's kingdom. A rumor spread that Theuderic was killed in battle while fighting in Thuringia. A powerful noble named Munderic claimed he had royal blood and that Theuderic's lands should pass to him. But Theuderic wasn't dead, and when he returned, he turned his armies against Munderic. What's fascinating about the Munderic affair was how it demonstrated the divisions in the Frankish army. In the north, the army led by Theuderic was almost entirely Germanic, meaning that they were ferocious but didn't have practically any skill in siege warfare. Meanwhile, in the south, the Franks led by Theuderic's 30-year-old son, Theudebert, were supplemented by Gallo-Romans who used siege equipment to take a number of fortresses, including Beziers and Dio. Theuderic's horsemen and infantry couldn't break any sizable fortress and only succeeded through dumb luck and subterfuge. Munderic's loyalists held a fort at Vouleur, but a treacherous defender opened the gates and Theuderic took the fort. Next, he moved to Chastel-Marlach, which withstood a siege, but the defenders grew overconfident and left the fort to attack Theuderic's men, at which point they were defeated, captured, and most likely beheaded. Munderic himself held out at Vitry. Theuderic attacked him, but his men didn't have siege engines and could only chuck spears at the walls. Theuderic realized the futility of his actions, and he had a messenger swear numerous oaths of loyalty and clemency to Munderic, should he emerge and pledge fealty to the Frankish king. Munderic and his men left the garrison and were immediately killed. Munderic really should have known better. After all, just the previous year, Theuderic promised clemency to the king of Thuringia and pushed him off a city wall. In 534, Theuderic died, for real this time, and his son Theudebert inherited his territories. Clothar wanted this land and convinced Childebert to join him in a war against their nephew. But Theudebert wasn't a child. He was an established general who defeated a Gietish army, even killing King Hygelac, who is mentioned in the epic poem Beowulf. 
Moreover, he fought in his father's campaigns and had over a decade of experience as a leader and soldier. Theudebert held his own against Clothar, and Childebert, sickened by his treacherous brother, decided to switch sides. Childebert, who had two daughters but no sons, adopted Theudebert as his heir, and the two drove Clothar back. But luck was on Clothar's side. A storm devastated his enemy's supplies, and the two retreated, leaving the status quo intact. At this point, the three Frankish kings could never trust each other. However, these three kings continued to fight alongside each other in future wars. This might seem insane, but it actually makes sense. These kings wanted to expand their kingdom. In fact, they needed to conquer or raid in order to pay their troops. But they couldn't fight on their own or risk the other two uniting to attack them. Thus, whenever they fought a major war, they usually joined forces so they could watch each other. The old saying, keep your friends close but your enemies closer, might as well have been the Merovingian family motto. In 534, the Ostrogothic king of Italy died, sparking a succession crisis. With the Ostrogoths in the midst of a civil war, the two remaining sons of Clovis and their nephew Theudebert invaded Burgundy. They captured and executed Gundamar and annexed Burgundy into Francia, where they divided it amongst themselves. While Burgundy was now a territory within Francia, it maintained an important identity, and many Frankish kings claimed the title King of Burgundy. Moreover, since the Burgundians were more heavily Romanized, the Frankish armies became more specialized, which helped in future wars. I should note at this time that a century after the Roman Empire's fall, some still wore Roman-style uniforms to honor their ancestors, which made the Frankish armies much more colorful. The Ostrogothic Civil War turned out to be the gift that kept on giving for the Franks. In 535, Byzantine Emperor Justinian I took advantage of the chaos and ordered an invasion of Italy. By 536, the Byzantines took Rome. The Ostrogoths were so hard-pressed that they recalled their forces from Provence, which the three Frankish kings gobbled up. Now Francia included nearly all of what we call France, save for the minor realm of Septimania. Over the next few years, the Byzantines struggled to hold Italy, and Theudebert decided to take advantage of the mutual bloodshed, and in 539 he marched south. The Ostrogoths and the Byzantines both believed the Franks were on their side, so no one tried to stop his army, which numbered in the tens of thousands. The Franks marched down the Po River and discovered a Gothic and Byzantine army staring each other down. The Goths welcomed the Franks, who then started killing them. The Byzantines then made the mistake of thinking that since they were fighting the Goths, the Franks must have been on their side. They welcomed the Franks, who also attacked them. This comedy of errors ended when the Frankish army contracted dysentery. Theudebert called a retreat, and the army left, laden down with booty. While this might seem insignificant, Theudebert's invasion of the Italian peninsula aided in its long decline. Constant warfare and raiding for centuries massively reduced Italy's population, wealth, and power. By the end of the Gothic War in 554, Italy was a hollow shell of its former self. Once the center of the Mediterranean world, it became a depopulated, 
poorly defended battleground for more powerful countries, namely the Byzantines, the Franks, and the Lombards, who invaded in 568. Before we get to even more wars, let's take a little break and cover some debauchery. The long-haired kings patronized Catholic monasteries and churches and espoused piety. But despite these godly trappings, Frankish kings were traditionally polygamists, who married as many women as possible to secure alliances, and many continued this tradition despite condemnation from the church. By now, Clothar was so powerful he believed he could defy his bishops, the pope, and maybe even God himself. At some point, he married his second wife, Ingund, daughter of Baderic, a former king of Thuringia. Ingund then asked Clothar to find her sister, Aragund, a suitable husband, at which point he claimed he was a suitable husband, and he took her as his third wife. In 540, Clothar married his royal hostage, Radigund, daughter of the last king of Thuringia. Radigund despised her kinslaying, womanizing, warmongering, oath-breaking, lying, treacherous, conniving, untrustworthy, depraved, monstrous, philandering, diabolical, debauched, demented, deplorable, abominable, reprehensible, unchristian, wicked, sadistic, malevolent, black-hearted, iniquitous, malcontent, shameful, heinous, corrupt, nefarious, loathsome, unholy, repugnant, spiteful, atrocious, deceitful, damnable, two-faced, mundacious, brutal, savage, heretical, murderous, blasphemous, bloodthirsty, vicious, profane, insane, unsanctimonious, and all-around not-very-nice husband, and later ran off to a convent. Clothar's actions disturbed his bishops, but he was powerful and patronized churches, so they did nothing but counsel him against polygamy and murdering children. Meanwhile, Theudebert took multiple wives, to which St. Nicetius, then Bishop of Trier, threatened to excommunicate him. Theudebert didn't just piss off holy men, but the Byzantine emperor as well. Up until this point, Frankish coins had the Byzantine emperor's name and likeness on them, as the Franks nominally ruled within the Roman Empire. While we in the present think of the Western Roman Empire falling in 476 with the Gothic sack of Rome, many contemporaries thought that the Roman Empire still existed, just in a new form. After all, the word Byzantine is something historians started calling the Eastern Roman Empire in the 19th century, they called themselves Romans, and many people living under barbarian rulers, even in the West, still thought of themselves as Romans too. In 538, Theudebert decided to do away with any pretense that he served Rome or the Byzantines and minted coins in his own image, shocking the court at Constantinople. But this soon became the norm as each Frankish king minted coins in their own image. All right, enough scandal, back to war. In 541, Childebert asked his brother to join him against the Visigoths in what was their last war together, at least on the same side. The two marched through the Pyrenees and took Pamplona before moving to Zaragoza. Historians disagree about what happened next, though it appears that the Visigothic king Theudas held them at bay and the Franks retreated without securing any major territory in Hispania, though they left with a fair share of plunder, including important relics. 
In 547, Theudebert went on a royal hunt and was killed by a wild animal, and the throne passed to his 13-year-old son, Theudebald, who was habitually ill. At this point, I'm sure you're suspecting Clothar to do something murdery, but Theudebald's court had such respect for his father that they swore allegiance to the young king, preventing another civil war. Yet Theudebald's perennial weakness overcame him, and in 555 he died at the age of 20. When he did, Clothar immediately marched upon the city of Metz and claimed his grandnephew's territory for his own. He took Theudebald's widow, Voldetrada, as either a wife or a concubine to secure his claim to the territory, but this was too much for the church who condemned his actions, and Clothar wedded off Voldetrada to a German noble. Clothar's next and last war was against one of his many sons. In the mid-550s, Cram made a pact with his uncle Childebert to overthrow his father, and raised an army around Poitiers. Clothar sent two of his sons to deal with Cram, but before their armies could meet, a violent storm hit, delaying a battle. Cram then forged a message and tricked his brothers into thinking their father had died, at which point the two retreated to Burgundy to safeguard their inheritance, freeing Cram to conquer more land, until he met his uncle Childebert in Paris, where the two debated strategies for killing Clothar once and for all. Then fate turned against Cram. On the 13th of December, 558, Childebert died, leaving behind two daughters and no sons. Childebert's former vassals feared Clothar's power and wrath, and they swore their allegiance to him, leaving Cram completely outnumbered. The rebellious prince fled to Armorica and raided his father's territories until Clothar arrived in force in 560. According to one source, Cram prepared to flee to Britannia to avoid certain execution, but he was captured before he could sail out. Clothar condemned him to death, and Cram, his wife, and children were strangled and their bodies burned. This second kinslaying, combined with his lifelong polygamy, was too much for many in the church, and Nicetius excommunicated him. Clothar understood how powerful the church was and how poor his reputation became, and he traveled to Tours to the tomb of St. Martin to do penance, but caught pneumonia and died. Clothar was 64, and at his death, he ruled over all of Francia. He killed or otherwise outlived all of his brothers and rival claimants and reunited Clovis' kingdom while adding even more territory. Upon his death, Francia included nearly all of modern-day France, with the notable exception of Septimania, and parts of modern-day Germany, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. Clothar had married every noble woman he could take, betrayed everyone he cared for, and committed every ruthless deed until finally all of Francia was united under his banner. When he died, he left behind four sons, who divided Francia into four kingdoms. Next time we take up the political narrative, we'll talk about how these four brothers warred with each other and brought havoc upon the kingdom of Francia as each attempted to rule a united kingdom. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. 
Thank you very much for your continued support. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.